All right. Well, let's go ahead and let's pray, and then we'll uh, spend some time in the text this morning. So let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. Uh, We just ask that as we open up your word this morning and we look at the truths that are found here, that your spirit would be working in our hearts and causing us to see our sin, that your, your word would and your spirit would work on our hearts to cause us to repent of those sins, and then we would then live in a way that's honoring and glorifying to you by the power of your spirit, for the glory of you and for the glory of your son. We just, uh, we just look forward to what you have te- to teach us this morning. So uh, in your son's name, amen. So every family has toxins in it, right? Um, we've all contributed to bad things in our family, right? Because we're all sinners, So by nature, by the theological truth that we're all sinners, we all sin, and as we sin, we contribute to the overall sinfulness of the family, and it continues on and on. And so we're all toxic, right? We all, some people are more toxic than others, but in in essence, we all contribute. And I would like to use a personal example of my wife this morning, of a toxic, no, I'm joking, uh, (laughs) The whole, all the air went out of the room the moment I said that. And the look that my, my wife gave me said, you're paying for that. So, uh, brothers and sisters, pray, pray for me this afternoon. No, we all, we all understand this truth, right? Everyone sins, and because of this sin, it contributes to the overall sinfulness of the family. It's toxic. And obviously the goal for us as believers is to have those toxins removed so that there is a healthy views, so that there is uh, health and, and, and growth and that it's clean, right? That's, that's the goal. And so this morning, I want to, as we close up this section in Proverbs 14, 1 through 11, we're going to be talking about uh, some healthy views, and these views will cleanse us, Uh, they will help us have the right perspective about things, they will help us as we work towards uh, becoming more and more like Christ, and our families will become more and more like Christ, but just a bit of a warning, these are not for the faint of heart, and in fact, we are going deep this morning. Not deep in the sense that we're talking about really deep things, but we're talking about you as a person and very deep things about you. So we're going to be talking about viewing yourself correctly, right? That's one of the things that we're going to be talking about, a healthy view of you. Can you evaluate yourself honestly? That's an important part of having a healthy family and having a healthy view. The other thing, making amends, admitting that you are a sinner not only to yourself, but to your family and to your God. And then lastly, we're going to 
we're going to see, it's really hard to put into a couple words, but essentially, no one really knows you. And you have to accept the fact that no one really knows you. The sorrows that are in your heart and the joys that are in your heart, no one really knows. Now, your spouse or some of the people in your family might have a better idea than most. But in a sense, they don't really know those things. And the only one that can is the only one that can help, which is the Lord himself. And so we, we need to understand that people are very complex and that the other people inside of my family cannot satisfy me and they cannot satisfy the needs of my soul. The only one that can do that is the Lord. So go with me to Proverbs 14. We're going to spend most of our time this morning in verses 8 through 11. So remember in this section... Um, this section is kind of bookmarked by verses 1 and verse 11 because both of them kind of have the same statement, right? And they kind of end. So the the very first statement found in verse 1, a wise woman builds her house, and then notice at the end of verse 11, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And so you have in between that, what is a depiction of a wisely built house, a godly family, right? You have that picture you also then have the other picture because there's an opposite. You have the, the house that's not very well built, right? You have this house that's not built on God's principles, and it's a crumbling house. We've already talked about this in verse 2, about how the foundation of every house, the, house, the foundation of your life and the foundation of your family has to be absolutely, unequivocally, absolutely no, uh, no ways about it. It has to have the fear of the Lord as the very basis. If the fear of the Lord is not there, it doesn't matter what you build on top, it will crumble. The fear of the Lord is that anchor. And that fear of the Lord is taking God seriously, understanding him and his attributes, saying we will listen to him. We take him serious. What he says we will do. This is done out of love that is brought about by the Holy Spirit as he works on your heart. And you want to love and honor the Lord and you don't want to bring any dishonor to him. And there's this awesome respect and reverence that you have for him. That is absolutely the foundation. We then talked about in verse 3 about the way that we talk, that our, our words need to be wise. And that wise words actually protect us and protect families, and we need to be wise in the way that we speak. Verse 4, we talked about how it requires diligent hard work, productive hard work. We need to put in the work into the families, and we need to put in work spiritually. Verse 5, we talked about how uh, within a family, there must be this dedication to tell the truth. We must tell the truth. In verse 6, we saw that we must know God, that with discernment comes knowledge of God, and once you know God, then you get more discernment, thus resulting in knowing God more. So your relationship with the Lord is absolutely vital for your family's health. It's vital for you, but it's also vital for your family. We saw in verse 7 about discernment about who we associate with. It is possible for us to make the wrong kind of friends and associate with the wrong kinds of people. And when we associate with the wrong kind of people, 
it could drive us and lead us away from the Lord himself. Now this morning, notice verse 8. It says, The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. Now, this is an incredibly interesting statement. So think of this. The wisdom, the way, the way that a sensible person walks, and, and in the book of Proverbs, every time the word that wisdom is used, wisdom is speaking of wisdom from God, wisdom from God's word, uh, a successful life in light of God's terms, right? It's living a life that's pleasing to him. So this wisdom comes from a sensible person, right? A person who has wisdom, a person who has discernment, a person that's walking with the Lord. So a person that has this kind of wisdom, it's already assumed, by the way, that this person already has the fear of the Lord. It's already assumed that this person knows the Lord and is growing in their knowledge of the Lord. So this this person who has wisdom and is sensible is able, notice, to discern or judge or think about his way. Now this is incredible. Because we all think about ourselves. We do. And we all evaluate ourselves, But here, a wise person is able to do it in a way that is accurate. Now, that is difficult. It's difficult to evaluate ourselves correctly. In fact, even in the scripture reading this morning in Romans 12, did, did it not say that we needed to esteem ourselves correctly, right? So we need to evaluate ourselves. The question is, do we do it in a way that is accurate? I find that when I evaluate myself and I evaluate the things that I'm doing and the way that I'm thinking, I either, I either go to two extremes. I either go to one where I inflate what I've done, right? This thing that I've done, it's better than what it really is. I'm the best at this, and you're not. So look at what I've done, right? I, I inflate it. Or what I do is I, I've done something bad and I diminish it. I go, well, it really wasn't as bad as that. It really wasn't as sinful as that. The reason that I did this thing was because somebody else did something else. So because they did something else, that's why I did what I did. So it's not as bad as if I would have done it without the other person. But the other person really is it's about 75% to blame. But to view oneself correctly is really difficult. As I was thinking about how to describe what this looks like for someone to view themselves correctly with who they are right now, what they're thinking right now, who Christ has called them to be, mixed with their past of the things that they've done in the past, how do you reconcile with good things and bad things in the past, plus your, what you're supposed to be doing now and things that you have planned in the future, how do you jumble that all together to evaluate all of that in a way that's honest and pleasing to the Lord? There's a couple examples, but there's one that I find very helpful, and the one that I find very, very helpful is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here, the Apostle Paul exemplifies for us how one is supposed to view ourself. And in a sense, in this, in this short passage from, chapter, from, verse one, or from chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, he kind of goes through all of these, his past, his future, how he's thinking about himself right now, and, and he, he sums it up in such a beautiful way of a proper view of oneself. And this is what wisdom is, and this is, this is what a wise person should strive for. Now, notice in verse 12, he says, I thank 
Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Now, think about this. Paul is thankful. We're going to see why Paul is thankful. I think a proper view of understanding who we are has to start with a sense of thankfulness, doesn't it? Thankfulness for what? Why, why should it start with thankfulness? Well, notice what Paul says. It is Jesus who strengthens him. It is Jesus who considers him faithful. And it is Jesus who puts him into service. So he's thankful that he's able to do something for the Lord, not because he is able to do something for the Lord based off of his own ability. He is thankful because it is the Lord who has put him into this opportunity. It's the Lord who has put him there as an apostle. It is the Lord who strengthens him to do what he's supposed to be doing. It is the Lord who considers him faithful. In order for us to think about ourselves correctly, we have to start with this idea of thankfulness, and thankfulness primarily because I consider the calling by which I've been called. I cannot have a correct view of myself, and you cannot have a correct view of yourself if you do not view yourself in Christ. If you are a believer, you need to start with, who am I in Christ? You need to start with, what has he strengthened and called me to do? That is a fundamental understanding of ourself. If we start from any other point, we can get off. It has to be based on who am I in Christ, right? This is the starting point. What is Christ calling me to do? What is Christ strengthening me to do? What service is Christ putting me into? Who am I in Jesus? Now, there's more to this thankfulness, by the way. It's not just that Christ has put him in the service, because notice what he says in verse 13. Even though I was, so thinking of his past, so here he's dealing with his past, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Remember, remember the Apostle Paul in his early life, before he was a believer. What did he do? He went after Christians. He killed Christians. He threw Christians into prison. And as he was still hot-headed about it and wanted more blood, he demanded extra permission to go to another town to persecute the Christians that are there. Then he meets the Lord Jesus Christ on the road, and then he becomes a Christian. And many of us, when we think about the Apostle Paul, and we think about who the Lord called him to be and where, where he was called to minister, yeah, I imagine him thinking about his past of killing Christians that now he is now giving his life for would be a really difficult pill to swallow. I don't know what he thought about when he went to bed. I don't, but I imagine... He thought about that sometimes. And notice that the Apostle Paul isn't hiding his past. He, he brings this right up. I'm thankful because Jesus Christ put me into service. Remember who I was. So he's quick to point out who he was. Now, he's not pointing out who he was as a, as a form of false pride. right? We do that sometimes. We, we, we talk about who we were before in Christ to, to, to build ourselves up so that people go, wow, that person... They overcame a lot to come to Jesus. The Apostle Paul is not doing that. In fact, what he's doing is he's, he's establishing a backdrop to demonstrate how thankful he is and that it is only by God's grace that he could be doing the ministry that he's called to. That's why he's talking about his past. He's talking about his past as an avenue and a platform for the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So he's talking about this dark, dark past. And he says, this is who I am now, but despite the fact of who I was in the past, because it was the Lord who caused this change in my life. And and notice what he says in the last part of verse 13. And yet I was shown mercy. He understands it's the mercy of God. It's the mercy and grace of God because I acted ignorantly and unbelief. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was more abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. He understands. He understands that he's not an apostle because he was such a great non-believer. He understands that he's an apostle in his current ministry and his current life is in spite of him and solely on the mercy and grace of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as the Apostle Paul is thinking about this, notice how he has this really good balance. He says, I have this current ministry, which I'm called to, which I'm empowered to. I have this terrible past. Guess what? That past is a great avenue to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as I think about who I am in Christ right now. It starts and stems from who he thinks he is in Christ. But there's more. Notice in verse 15, he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. Right? This is the gospel. We have to accept this. This is the gospel, that Jesus Christ came down, died on the cross for sinners. Everyone who believes on the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, abandoning all other methods of salvation, shall shall be saved. Only faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone is their salvation. We accept that, right? That's what we think about all the time as believers, or that's what we should think about all the time as believers. And that's not really shocking, by the way, that Paul says this deserves full acceptance because we would all go, yeah, yeah, that, that's, the obvious, that's the obvious truth. The thing that's more striking is what he says after this. He says, among whom I am the foremost of all, re- referring to sinners. That's probably more striking than the first statement. The first statement's incredible. The second statement, you go, do you really... Do you really think that about yourself, Paul? Because <laughs> I guarantee you, if we looked at the Apostle Paul at the time that he penned this, and we looked at his life, we would not say, there is the most wicked man on the face of the earth. Right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't say of him, he's the foremost of sinners. But Paul comes to this conclusion himself. And I don't think he's just using rhetoric here. I don't think he's just being hyperbolic. I think he truly sees himself as a sinner and a bad sinner. And the question is, how does one get to this point? It has to start with him looking at something outside of himself. He has to examine himself, not by other sinners, but by the righteous standard of Jesus Christ and of God himself. This can only come, you can only make this statement if you know God. And as you know God, you understand the statement exactly because you're comparing yourself with God and you're going, I'm the worst. And the closer you get to the light, the more darkness and shadows are exposed of your life. This is is comparing yourself to God, you realize how how far you fall short. And that's what the Apostle Paul is pointing to. He knows God. He knows the, 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 the attributes of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. He knows the Lord, and he continues to know the Lord. And as he grows in that knowledge of the Lord, he grows in knowledge of who he really is. 
and he sees all of those things that he doesn't like that are against the Lord. That's an important thing to remember about ourselves, that we are still sinners. We still do a lot of bad stuff. Does that erase? Does that erase the fact that God called us to live for him? Does that erase his calling? Absolutely not. You could get to this point and get incredibly depressed and say, well, then why, why should I even try? If I'm just going to continue to sin, I'm not even going to try to live for the Lord. Or you could become depressed saying, I can't do anything. I'm just not going to do anything then. But that's not the Apostle Paul. Notice what the Apostle Paul does next. He says, yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. So once again, the backdrop of his own flesh the backdrop becomes another avenue for him to then honor and glorify Jesus Christ. That's the perspective that he has. Sin is bad. He's not not excusing his sin, but he's saying, look, I'm a sinner, and in spite of who I am, the Lord is using me, and, and as you see the Lord using me, that is only for his honor and for his glory. This is the proper perspective. A wise person sees themselves like this. They realize that The only good that I have in my life comes because of God's grace and because of God's mercy. I'm a sinner. Yep, I do do terrible things. I have terrible thoughts. But guess what? That is a great backdrop to show how the Lord Jesus Christ can take a sinner and use a sinner in a way to honor and glorify him. That That is how we view ourselves. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I need to confess my sins. But the Lord's called me and strengthened me for a specific service. I'm going to accomplish that service because he's called me to do it. Yes, I'm a sinner. I'm confessing. I'm moving on. I'm repenting. But that does not stop me. I shouldn't stop living for the Lord because of my sinfulness. This is a proper perspective of being able to see oneself honestly, look at oneself, see who they are, evaluate themselves, and go, yep, this is who I am. This is who I am in Christ. This is a wise perspective. Now, if we go back to the book of Proverbs, notice there's another thing that that, that Solomon says here in 14. It's what he says says in verse 8. But the foolishness of fools is deceit. So the one sense is one guy understands himself correctly, and, and, and he's able to address that. The other person, the fool, is deceiving himself. He's lying to himself. He's deluded. He's not seeing himself correctly. He's either inflating himself or diminishing some of the bad things that he's done. Everything about it is a deceit. Now you may say, well, how does this help in a family dynamic? How does it help? Why is it superior to have somebody who can honestly see themselves, honestly acknowledge the grace of God in their life, honestly acknowledge their sinfulness, how is that helpful in a family opposed to somebody who is so self-deluded that everything they think they do is great and good and righteous? Well, I think it's pretty obvious on the face. I think we've all met people who always think they're right, always think they're righteous, and then you try to deal with them, it causes a lot of problems. When they're right, it's okay, but when, but when there's a disagreement, there's absolutely no way of trying to convince that other person. Whereas if a person starts off with everything that's good comes from God's grace and from mercy, it starts from a, a sense of humility, it starts from a sense of I'm striving to be like Christ, I'm not perfect, there's always this sense of, okay, maybe the problem is me, maybe I need to change. 
Maybe the issue's with me. Maybe we need to be focusing more on the grace of God than we do on the righteousness of a particular person inside of that family. You can obviously see how one builds, because it starts from a sense of humility, saying there's still room to grow. The other one says, I've peaked and I've, I'm, I've arrived. And when you feel like you've peaked and you've arrived, there's no room for growth. You can't build if you don't think you need to build. Let's go on to the next one. This next one is, it was shocking. It, it, it's probably one of the most shocking phrases so far in the book of Proverbs for me. Notice what it says in verse 9. Fools mock at sin. That is pretty shocking. A fool will make light. That's what the word here, mock, means. Make light, uh, repudiate, have a, uh, have a sense of, of, of laughing about, to make fun of, at sin. Now, this word for sin here is not the normal word that's used for sin. It's, it's kind of an interesting word. It, 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 does, it, it does mean sin and, and something that, occur, that occurs guilt. And so, at, at the very basic level, we could say a, a fool makes light of his sin. That's what a fool does. When a fool sins, he makes light of it. He, he almost, you almost get the sense that he almost, he, he almost enjoys the sin. And any time that anyone says you've sinned, he loves to laugh at them saying, that's not a sin. That's, that's not a sin. He kind of pushes it off to the side, doesn't deal with it. But, but there's something probably a little bit deeper to this word sin here, especially when you consider it with the second part of the, of the verse. Because notice the second part of the verse, it says, but among the upright there is good will. So there's a sense here that the parallelism is that his mocking at sin is, yes, a mocking at sin, but obviously it, it, there's mocking at that attempt to bring about restoration, right? Because that, that's one of the other meanings of this word, a psalm. It, it has the idea of, of, of also restitution. So it would be making fun of any time that anyone is trying to make amends for sin. So, so in a sense, at, at the basic level, it's taking sin lightly, but it would be the sense of it takes sin so lightly that it doesn't even, that the fool doesn't even want to deal with the sin. He wants to push the sin off to the side. There's no restitution possible for that sin. There's no goodwill. Sin's not an issue at all. There's no confession of sin. There's no admission of sin. There's no forgiveness of sin. Sin is a laughing matter, something to be pushed off to the side. Let's all live and live and let live, right? You sin, I sin, we all sin, who cares? That's the, that's the idea. Anytime that somebody then tries to make amends for sin, that person may even be ridiculed. There's times that I've, I've even heard believers say this when they, uh, in talking about a situation, and I say, well, maybe the, maybe the solution is confession of sin. And uh, they say, well, if I confess my sin, won't that make me look weak? Who cares? That's not the point. The point of confession of sin is not to use it like a crowbar for leverage over another person. Confession of sin and asking for forgiveness is all about repairing a relationship that's been damaged. There's no upper hand. And if you view confession of sin and forgiveness as like a crowbar in order to get an upper hand, that is sick, demented, and foolish. That, that's what a fool does. It's a game. It's laughable. It, it doesn't matter. 
But notice the upright. But among the upright, there's goodwill. And the sense is, why is there goodwill? Because the upright confess their sin. They admit that they've done something wrong and they've asked for forgiveness. This is not only humanly, but also with God. As I was thinking about this, there's one passage that automatically jumps to my mind that deals with the confession of sin. I'm sure we all could quote it. But let's go to 1 John 1, 9. This passage is talking to believers. And the book is dealing, I see the book of 1 John dealing with fellowship with the Lord and walking with the Lord. That's what I think the book is about. And it's dealing... <clears throat> No doubt that there's some false teachers going around to the, uh, in, in the early church. And no doubt there's a particular false teacher that even the Apostle John might have in mind in some of their teaching. In fact, you might even, we even see some of that teaching coming in and the Apostle John having to refute some of that teaching and some of the things he says. But the reason he refutes that teaching is because it, it affects the walk of the believer with God. Right? That's what false theology does. False theology always deals with our relationship with the Lord. And false theology takes us away from the Lord and affects our walk with the Lord. That's why sound doctrine is so important. I I alluded to it the past couple weeks, but I just got to say it again because it's in my crawl. And I I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't say what was in my crawl. Doctrine today has become such a bad word, and probably because a lot of the way that people look at doctrine, it should be a bad word. If, if doctrine is just simply, here's the statements I believe versus the statements of what you believe, and we use them as holy hand grenades to fight with each other, and that's the purpose, I win a theological battle, you lose, yes, that is wrong and that is sinful. That's not why we should be in support of sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is the truth, the teaching of the Bible, and how we relate to God. It is the truth about how we relate to him and how we relate to others. If I have false theology, that means that there's something inside of my mind that I'm thinking about that's moving me away from my Lord and I can't have the right kind of fellowship. So doctrine is serious because it deals with your relationship with the Lord. This is not just some opportunity for us to yell at the Methodists, right? This is... this. When we talk about doctrine, this is, these are things that are true, that are important for you in your walk with the Lord. So that's why John is, so, is talking about sound doctrine here, because that sound doctrine is moving the people away from the Lord. So he's talking about their fellowship, realizing that there's some, some weird theological ringworms coming in. So in this section from John, 5, uh, John 1, verse 5 through 10, it's an interesting description because he, he kind of says, here's, here's the message that we've heard, verse 5. Here's the message we've heard from the beginning, that we've heard from him, and we announce to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie, and, do, and, the truth is not, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, and our fellowship is one with one another, and the blood of Jesus the Son cleanses us from all sin. So you get the sense of the, the fellowship between the church and walking as God is, emulating God, being Christ-like, that is an evidence of saving faith, right? That's what he's saying. 
that a believer, this is, this is the expectation of the believer is to walk this way. It is possible for someone to say, I am in fellowship with God, I do know God, and yet our behavior is full of darkness. We should be very careful because they're lying. They do not have the right kind of relationship with the Lord, and they're not walking the way that they should. So then notice what he then says in verse 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, well, that's kind of an uh uh-oh statement, right? But I guess it's possible, right? A long time ago, there used to be, it was really prevalent of people who believed that they could be perfect on this side of heaven. Nope, can't do that. But we've also met believers who don't think that they've ever done anything wrong. I haven't done any sin. Both of those are bad. So if we say that we have no sin, what's happening? We're deceiving ourselves, We're lying to ourselves. We're acting like the fool, right? We're not seeing ourselves correctly. Isn't that what we just talked about in the last verse, about seeing oneself correctly? This person can't see themselves correctly. They think that they're right, but they're not. And notice that the truth is not in them. So verse 9, what's the recourse for the believer? It's not to say that there is no such thing as sin in the believer's life. It actually assumes that there is sin, right? This is still part of our reality. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to be confessing our sins, And notice, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This this is what a believer does. A believer confesses his sin. What does it mean to confess? The word essentially means to say the same thing. So if I'm confessing my sin, I'm saying the same thing about my sin that God is saying about my sin. Right? That's what it is. I'm confessing that that particular thing, that I have the same view that God has, and that same thing that I just did, God says is, is worthy that I'm guilty of it, I say I'm guilty of it. To confess sin means to have sorrow over the fact that I did the deed and possibly hurt my relationship with my Lord. And to confess one's sin is to then ask for forgiveness. That's kind of assumed in the next part when it says, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And so then what does God do? He forgives us. What does that look like? He automatically says in an act, that that thing that was before us is now no longer in between us right? There's this sense of a pardoning, that that, that, that offense. I'm no longer looking at that offense. You're guilty of it, but you're pardoned from it, right? That that relationship which was damaged is now repaired. So when we deal with other humans, it's the same way. We shouldn't change the definition of confession and forgiveness. It's the same thing. If you've done something wrong to somebody inside of your family, what should be the first thing you do? Confess it, which means you admit that you did something wrong. You express sorrow, that you, pot, that you hurt them, that the thing that you did was wrong, and that you possibly damaged that relationship. Then you ask for forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And as believers, the standard is to forgive. The same way that God forgives. That is how we're supposed to forgive. So when I think of this passage in, in Proverbs 14... When it says, in the upright there is goodwill, to me this speaks of the upright not only confessing their sins to God, but confessing their sins to others, but I think there's also that other added part of forgiveness. So many families are broken apart and are in ruins because families fail to forgive one another. This should not be so in a Christian family. A Christian family... And as, as far as Christians go, we should be the first to forgive. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean that we become buddy-buddy again. There's sometimes where forgiveness means, yes, 
We, we can be cordial with one another, but th- there's some things that we got to work on. That's okay. That, that, that's not necessarily part of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the sense of saying, okay, that thing, I'm pardoning you of that offense that you have against me. That relationship is repaired, and I am no longer going to bring that up again. It's done. It's dealt with. That's it. That's forgiveness. So, as happens often in our fights, all, everybody who's ever been in a family fight knows exactly what happens in a fight. As you start to fight, what do you start to do? You start to list every single thing that a person had done in the past. Well, guess what? If you've actually forgiven them, that is out of bounds. Because forgiveness means that will never be brought up again. But you know what ends up happening? Somebody brings up something from the past. Oh, yeah, well, remember when you did? Oh, yeah, well, you remember when you did? Oh, yeah, you remember when you did? No. As believers, forgive. That's it. We forgive. Obviously, there's a lot more that we could talk about forgiveness, but let's move on to the next one. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, The heart knows its own bitterness, but a stranger does not share its joy. It's kind of an interesting proverb. It, it's obviously true, right? I know my own hurts. I know all of the things that I've been through. I know how certain words, certain actions, certain things said, how that's affected me, right? I don't necessarily express every single hurt that I have that, that's on my soul, but I know those, and they're mine, right? And there's even certain joys that I have. And guess what? A stranger doesn't even share in that joy, meaning I can have a joy, and somebody can be joyful along with me, but they don't, they don't have the same height of joy about that particular thing as I do. There, there's a sense in which I'm the only one that really knows me, and you're really the only one that knows you, right? No other human can really know you to the depths that you know yourself. Now, there's one that knows you better than you know you. That's the Lord. And there's one who understands your sorrows and can truly empathize with your sorrows. It's the Lord Jesus Christ because he knows it. There's one who can share in your joys. That's the Lord because he knows it. Now you say, well, why is this in the middle of a passage talking about building a strong family? Why is this important? Why is this a proverb? What's the principle here? I see three things right off the bat. Number one, you and I need to know this as a truth. No one knows me. All of us are incredibly complex, and there are things that people don't even know. And there's things about people inside of my own family I don't know. That's just the reality of the way it's going to be. Number two, no human can ever know that, nor can they ever be, nor can they ever satisfy my sorrows, nor can they celebrate with me in the midst of my joys. So if no other human can know it, no other human can actually be the sufficient person to comfort me in the midst of sorrow or to celebrate with me in the midst of joy. Third, the only one that can do that is the Lord. So in a family setting, I stop looking at my family as the way for complete satisfaction. My family cannot do it. Now, my, my family is supposed to be, they're supposed to cry with me when I'm crying. They're supposed to be joyful with me when I'm joyful. They, they're supposed to help. The Lord may even use them in his way of, of cheering me up or, or in celebrating with me. 
But I stop putting on my family this false expectation that another human being can be the thing or the one that satisfies me. No other human can satisfy me. I can't satisfy myself, let alone another human being. I got to stop putting that expectation on other people. They got to stop putting that expectation on me. We can't be everything for everyone. Who can? God. God is the one that can satisfy you. In the midst of your greatest sorrows, he's the one that can comfort in a way that no one else can comfort. In the greatest moments of joy, he's the only one that will celebrate with you in the way that, you, that is appropriate. No one else can do that. So in a family setting, it goes, what should you say? You should say, well, the first response is to go to the Lord. In the greatest moments of sorrow, to the Lord. In the greatest moments of joy, to the Lord. In everything in between, the Lord. Because he's the one that satisfies. So many families put this false expectation on other human beings to be God for them. And they can't be that. Now, God may use them, and the families are important in this process. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to comfort. I'm not saying that we shouldn't celebrate. But what I'm saying is, from my point of view, I need to realize you cannot be sorrowful enough for me to the point that I need to be comforted. You can't comfort me the way that I need to be comforted. Only the Lord can. He might use you, but it's the Lord. So I think about times when families are in great pain and They come to us as elders, and our advice is almost unanimously, seek the Lord for comfort. That is not some sort of platitude that we offer because we have nothing else to say. That is the solution. That is it. There is no other solution. So then notice verse 11. The house of the wicked will be destroyed. It'll be destroyed. It'll it'll decay. It'll, It'll move away. But the tent of the upright will flourish. This is, this is what a good household looks like. And as I was thinking about these, these principles that we found in this text, you know, I, I was thinking about it and I thought, isn't this, isn't this kind of a nice, sweet little passage when we're going through family difficulties or we're thinking about family and we're thinking about others inside of the family? Isn't this a great little passage for us to go through to think about when we're dealing with family issues or just family in general? As we think about, okay, how do I make my family better? This passage could kind of act as like a, like a, a guideline, right? That, that we go, okay, so first thing in, in dealing with a family issue, the first thing that I need to do is I need to make sure that I am fearing the Lord. Before I even deal with the other people and the problems, am I fearing the Lord? Am I more concerned about what the Lord has to say than what everybody else in my family has to say, Right? The second thing that I'm thinking about is, okay, the things that I say and the way that I say, are these things that are hurtful? Are these things that are protecting and edifying? And are the things that I'm doing, are they productive? Am I actually putting my efforts in things that are productive to solve the solution? Or am I actually spending all my time in things that are not really all that productive? Am I telling the truth? Or am I lying? Right? Am I being truthful? One of the other things, too, is am I developing the right kind of and honing my discernment? Do I have the right kind of discernment? Th- these are all things that we need to be thinking about. A- am, I, am I inviting people into the problem who are not the right kind of people that are not giving me the right kind of advice? 
right? Am I honestly evaluating myself and my role in this family problem or in this family? Am I, eva- am I inflating who I am? Am I, am I seeing myself as being way too important? Or am I, devalu- am I devaluing all the bad things that I've contributed? Am I confessing my sins? Is there something wrong that I've done that I need to confess my sins? Am I putting on to the other people in my family? Or is this, or is this, this false expectation in my family that the only people that can solve our emotional complexities and seek satisfaction is some sort of human or something other than the Lord. These principles, this guideline, I think is a very helpful guideline of walking through and fixing family dynamics. In fact, if you were to come to me right now and say, we need counseling, guess what I would do? I'd walk you through this passage because this is all the stuff that needs to be in a place. And these things are the important things that need to happen to build a strong, godly household for his honor and for his glory. May the Lord give us the will and the ability to do all that his word asks us to do. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we just thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that are found in your word. We ask that as we live for you and as we attempt to live for you, that you will help us be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you'd be with our families and that as we deal with our families, that we would deal with them like this passage talks about in Proverbs 14, that we would be that we would establish godly families that are more concerned about what you have to say than what anyone else has to say, and that we would strive to know you, strive to know you first and foremost, and that from that knowledge would come the way that we should act. We thank you and we love you for everything you blessed us with. We ask for your blessings on the rest of the day. In your son's name, amen.